hopefully in a moment you will be able to join me in a call to worship. Yudoka, is it working? It is. Would you please say the words in bold? By this I have known... Yesterday, the pipe organ performed absolutely flawlessly for an entire day for 400 people for a major organ concert, and today it's decided it's having a day off and a fuse has blown. So I, I'm really sorry that we're not able to enjoy the Bloomsbury Beast in all of its fine pipe uh, stuff this morning. So Philip is going to play our hymns for this morning on the piano instead. So we sing together, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son.
Would you please be seated? Well, you sound in fine voice this morning as we were singing that, that Epiphany hymn. We're not quite over Christmas yet, almost, but we are still in the season of Epiphany, so uh, we can still sing those ones uh, for another few days yet. My name is Simon. I'm one of the ministers here at Bloomsbury. Uh, and communities Minister Dawn is sitting on the front row and is going to be leading the latter part of the service for us. And our other colleague, Ruth, our co-minister, is in Cheadle in Manchester this morning. She is preaching with a view to the ministry there. So would you please this morning hold Ruth in prayer? Uh, she has told Bloomsbury that she's going to be leaving us as a minister at the end of April and is currently in the process of seeking the Lord's leading for her future. So her and Ian have a really important couple of days as they explore with this church in Manchester whether that is going to be their next move and her next ministry. So uh, she knows that our prayers go with her and I've assured her that's the case and uh, let's make it so. Uh, a special welcome to uh, those who are visiting us this morning and I know we have a, a, a particular uh, group who are sat there nice and dead center uh, mostly I think from Texas from three different universities it's really good to have you with us this morning and please in due course take our greetings back to your home churches and I understand you're doing a month of a church crawl so you've been to St. Paul's Cathedral, and then you're here, and then you're at Wesley's Chapel, and then you're at Westminster Abbey. So enjoy that huge diversity that you're experiencing there of London's worship life. And if in due course some of you want to come back and worship with us for a few weeks before you go back, you'd be very welcome. And it'd be good to get to know you a bit better. We're going to have our first reading now brought to us by Margaret. The first reading you'll find in your Pew Bibles on page 37, and it's Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. A man with an unclean spirit. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, throwing him into convulsions, and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The second reading you'll find on page 182 in the Pew Bible, and it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, and it's food offered to idols, and I just did a little bit of research. Most of the meat sold in butcher's shops in Corinth at the time of Paul writing this letter 
had come from pagan temples where it had been offered to idols. And many of the new converts to Christianity found this a real dilemma. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as in fact there are many gods, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for, for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Does not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now that they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So, by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause for their falling, I will never eat meat so that I might not cause one of them to fall. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This week, I attended a training course run by the Mennonite organization Bridge Builders about handling power in church leadership. And as preparation for the day, I was asked to do a bit of homework. I had to come prepared with a couple of examples drawn from my experience of real-life ministry relating to my experience of power. Firstly, I had to think of an occasion when I've been conscious of exercising power, and I was invited to reflect on how I felt about doing so and what I had learned from this experience. And secondly, I had to think of a personal example of an occasion when I'd felt powerless. And I was invited to reflect on what it felt like to be powerless and what I did in response to those feelings of powerlessness. I didn't find this an easy exercise. Not only because, frankly, any kind of reflective practice usually has me running for the hills, but because reflecting on power 
and powerlessness, on strength and weakness, is such a deeply personal experience and potentially so emotively fraught. There are, of course, some Christians who think that we should never talk about power. And they will point to the example of Jesus who goes to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, laying aside his power and taking on the mantle of weakness. If we are to be authentically Christ-like, these Christians suggest, we too must lay aside all power and embrace weakness and powerlessness as a virtue of discipleship. We must be those who turn the other cheek who embody meekness, who reject all temptations to act in strength. But then, of course, there are those Christians who seem to talk about nothing other than power, singing songs about there being power in the name of Jesus to overcome all evil, to cast out demons and resist all temptations. They would claim that if we are to be authentically Christ-like, we should embody this power in our lives, allowing the strength of Christ to flow through us, to bring healing and release to a hurting and damaged world. And I'm sure you, like me, have met people at both ends of this spectrum. And I wonder where you sit on it. I wonder where I sit on it. I suspect that personally I gravitate more towards the powerful end of things. Not in a name it, claim it, be gone from here foul fiend kind of way, but certainly in a kind of highly competent for Jesus kind of way. I am, after all, a powerful person. I'm white. I'm male. I'm straight. I'm married. I'm Western. I'm English. I'm highly educated. I'm comfortably off. All of these things in our society give me power. Some of them I was born with. Others I've worked hard for. But putting them all together, a picture emerges somewhat uncomfortably, of Simon as a fairly powerful person, albeit one who wants to use that power for good. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, says Paul to the fairly powerful Christians of first century Corinth. They were a relatively strong bunch of believers from a, a kind of wealthy, cosmopolitan, broad-minded city. They were also a complete nightmare, as strong people often can be when they flock together. Is Bloomsbury a church of the strong? But their issue was trying to tease out whether it was okay to eat food that had been offered to idols. The argument was fairly simple, really, and very logical. If the pagan gods don't really exist, 
then the fact that this cheap lunch might have been offered to one of these non-existent gods at some point is entirely irrelevant to its taste and indeed we might add calorific value. Of course it's fine to eat food that's been offered to idols. The idols don't exist. QED. This is an example of how sometimes the strong, the powerful and the logical can be both entirely right and entirely wrong both at the same time. Here I am borrowing a phrase from my colleague Dawn, who said this phrase to me fairly recently, when I did something that was absolutely right from a logical point of view, but entirely wrong from an emotional perspective. And this sums up, I think, the strong in the church in Corinth. Yes, of course it's fine to eat food that's been previously dedicated to an idol if you're sure in your conviction that the idol is a fiction. But if by doing so you cause someone else to stumble, someone whose conversion to Christ may not yet have bedded in so thoroughly, someone who still feels the pull of the old gods and has to try hard to resist it, then, maybe, just maybe, eating meat that has been offered to idols might not be such a great idea after all. This is why many churches embraced the temperance movement, historically speaking, at a time when the evils of alcohol were ravaging society. Although, interestingly, I, I was hearing a historical uh, broadcast this week about the temperance movement, it was more about stopping people who didn't drink starting to drink by getting them to sign a pledge early in life that they'll never drink than it was about helping people who had become addicted to alcohol out of their addiction. But there was no doubt that at the time of the temperance movement, society in, in the big cities was hugely oppressed by addiction to alcohol. The artist William Hogarth, captured something of the spirit of the age, so to speak, in his famous engraving, Gin Lane. I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's the one with uh, the woman with a gin bottle in one hand and she's dropping her baby over the steps because she's let go because she's too drunk and the baby's falling. Um, drawn in 1751. Interestingly, as far as I can tell, having wandered around with a copy of the engraving in my hand, set sort of just behind where the back wall of our church is now, because in the engraving you have the spire of St. George's Bloomsbury, which is about 200 yards that way. And you can kind of work out that this church was where it is, because one of the worst slums in London was just behind it. Well, was there anything inherently wrong with alcohol? I'm going to say no, not inherently. But if the church of the 18th century was to minister effectively to those who still felt its destructive pull on their lives, maybe Christians for a time needed to set aside their logical freedom to drink in order that those who were seeking escape from alcoholism and those who were feeling drawn towards it might be released from those temptations. The legacy of this, of course, is that we still have alcohol-free wine at communion. Although, interestingly, we don't have a blanket ban on alcohol on our church premises in the way that some earlier churches do. So I find myself wondering 
what the issues are in our time, where strong Christians might be called to set aside their liberty for the sake of the weak. Well, alcohol is certainly still an issue in society, but I'm not convinced that reviving the temperance movement is the way to solve it. Maybe, on that one, modelling responsible drinking in moderation and then also helping people who have alcohol addiction problems engage with counselling and therapy to address the root cause of what it is that is driving them into addiction might be a more productive perspective than trying to avoid it altogether. But what about other areas where our freedom to be strong might cause others to stumble? One of my favourite singers is called Neil Hannan. He's an Irish singer, and he performs under the name The Divine Comedy. If you haven't heard his wonderful version of the hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, I'd encourage you to go on YouTube and look it up. Anyway, one of his songs is called Eye of the Needle. And in it, he highlights the way in which conspicuous consumption by Christians can cause others, including him, to look on in doubt. Listen to the words. They say that you'll hear him if you're really listening and pray for that feeling of grace. But that's what I'm doing. Why doesn't he answer? I've prayed till I'm blue in the face. The cars in the churchyard are shiny and German, distinctly at odds with the theme of the sermon. And during communion, I study the people threading themselves through the eye of a needle. Another song by the... Uh, Yes, this is true. The Christian skiffle band, Fat and Frantic, makes a similar point. Freedom is a sweet word, a taste to savour. Say it loud. Exercise your freedom. Freedom means you are allowed to make and guard your pile against the people who have freedom to do as they please but haven't used it so constructively as you. Freedom is a sweet word. It shines and glistens like a star. But where's the joy in freedom when you're free to obey the colour bar? You're free to starve and free to die and free to do anything but express that Jesus never gave to anyone the freedom to oppress. You know that freedom is a sweet word, but freedom without justice is a freedom for a few who have bought the right to tell us that their freedom lie is true. Freedom without justice grows up into slavery if you're not a Barclay card-carrying member of the free. We simply have to recognise, if we are to appropriate our passage for this morning to our context, that there is stuff that the world sees us doing that causes them to reject God. Our freedom is a stumbling block to the faith of others. It could be our wealth and our conspicuous consumption, or it could be our attitude towards minorities. Or it could be our unwillingness to engage in the issues that really matter to the world. And our obsession with issues that really don't. It could be our hypocrisy. 
All these and so much more are places where we have the freedom and the strength and the power to act as we see fit, but where our doing so is entirely wrong when looked at from the perspective of the weak and the powerless. And all of this is true, and we who are strong need to hear it, and we need to guard our hearts and our behaviour. But it is not the whole story. And this sermon is not merely a telling off for those of us who have power. There is a cautionary tale here that the powerful need to note and note well, but I think we can go further with our passage from Paul. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This verse has been used and misused down the years to justify all sorts of oppression, both within and beyond the Christian church. I can think of one church, known to me for many years now, where the desire to not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak was used to perpetuate a status quo that was profoundly unjust for some others in that congregation. The issue for them was the issue of whether women could speak in church, whether they could pray and preach and teach. The tradition of the church was that they could not. But there was a new generation of women, educated and articulate, who were starting to say that they felt God was calling and gifting them for ministries of leadership and preaching and teaching. There was also new insight emerging regarding how to interpret the Bible. As people found ways of reading the problem passages about women in new ways, which did not prohibit female involvement in church ministry. Ah, said the church leadership, who were of course all male, we'd love to have women ministering. But you see, there are those in our congregation who have not yet got to the point in their faith where they can cope with women in leadership because of the way they interpret the Bible and the way they were brought up. Maybe in a generation or so things will be different, but for now we must not exercise our liberty in such a way as to put a stumbling block in the way of their faith. And so the women in that church, including my wife, were asked to keep silence. And the church was denied the ministry of women for another generation. Here's the point. The desire to protect the faith of the so-called weak can too easily become an excuse to perpetuate the abuse of those who are in fact far weaker because they have no voice. The people didn't want, sorry, the people who didn't want women in ministry in that church had in fact a powerful lobby to get their argument across. They had all their Bible passages lined up and they already had the friendly ear of the church leadership who heard their perspective loud and clear. The women who wanted freedom had no power, no voice, 
and were entirely beholden to the decisions of the male church leaders, who frankly had nothing to lose and everything to gain by asking the women to keep quiet and in their place. In fact, actually, it was worse than this. The women were allowed to teach, but only children and other women. It was a classic case of, if you really must do this, don't do it where we can see you. And if you think this is a redundant issue, have you seen the furore just this week regarding John Piper? He is a highly influential American Baptist pastor whose sermons and lectures are massively popular on both sides of the Atlantic. There will be many sermons preached this morning where the preacher has consulted John Piper's writings as part of their preparation. Well, this week he said in a podcast that not only should women not be allowed to preach or teach in church, but that female academics should not be allowed to teach in seminaries. And I would just like to raise the question of where strength lies here and where weakness is to be found. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so we come to human sexuality. Many of you will know that Bloomsbury is registered for same-sex marriages. We've so far had four same-sex ceremonies here. Mostly, the response of the wider Baptist family has been one of quiet disapproval, coupled with some quiet gratitude that we're taking a lead where others are uh, not able or willing to follow. The bottom line has appeared to be that if we keep our heads down and don't make too much of a fuss about it, others are sort of reluctantly adjusted for us doing our thing. However, a wedding we had here last autumn rather upped the ante as it got us onto BBC One as part of a programme with Sam Smith, who is apparently a popular singer, as I discovered about 10 minutes before I had to meet him. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'd never heard of him. Anyway, he walked in through the door and I had to say hello to him on camera and they were like, you've no idea who you're meeting. I said, no, I've got no clue. <laughs> I'm stuck in the 80s. Well, since then, millions of people have watched the short video of the wedding, either live or on YouTube. We think about 8 million saw it live, and about a further 3 million have watched it on YouTube. So, hey, we're out there. And suddenly things changed somewhat, because Bloomsbury had transgressed this don't ask, don't tell status quo. And this is where it got interesting from the point of view of our passage for this morning. It has been suggested to us in no uncertain terms, through the medium of a public letter, and on the basis of this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that in our exercising of our freedom to conduct same-sex marriages, and in our allowing this to be known about more widely, we have been using our power in such a way as to cause others to stumble in their faith. This, we and everyone else who received the letter were told, was something we should not have done. Just because we have the freedom to offer wedding ceremonies to same-sex couples doesn't mean we should, we were told. Can you see the similarity between this argument and the argument of the congregation I was talking about earlier who wanted to prohibit the ministry of women? 
And the thing is, I don't think the weak party in either of these scenarios are those who have a problem with the exercising of liberty by the strong. I don't think the people who argue against women in ministry are weak. I think they're wrong, but I don't think they're weak. Similarly, I don't think people who argue against same-sex marriage are weak. It's a very powerful and well-heard voice. So, if I affirm the ministry of a woman or conduct a same-sex wedding, I don't believe that the exercising of my freedom to do so is causing my weaker brother or sister to stumble. In fact, I think the opposite is true. The weak are those who are disvoiced, excluded, marginalised and oppressed. The weak are the women, the LGBTQ community, and if I may, I may broaden it a bit further, the asylum seeker, the person from an ethnic minority, the person who has no home, the person weighed down by debt. If I thought for one moment that my freedom to act was causing such as these to stumble, I would fall to my own knees in repentance. But I don't think that's what's happening when we take a stand of solidarity with the genuinely weak and join our voices with theirs to advocate their cause. In fact, I will go further. Those who seek to use their influence and power to restrict the ministry of women, to prevent people of the same gender who love each other becoming married, or to stop those in same-sex marriages from entering ministry, are, in my view, at risk of the very sin of which they are accusing others. The thing is, it is notoriously difficult for the powerful to judge who is weak and who is strong. Any loss of power by the powerful runs the risk of becoming, in their mind, an experience of persecution. Whereas, in actual fact, it might just be an equalizing of power with those who have not previously had any. And so, Christians sometimes fail to challenge injustice because of our deep-seated, internalized, and unacknowledged commitment to maintaining our powerful place within society's status quo. And we then end up passing judgment on others who are challenging that status quo because we have become so entrenched in our position of strength that we cannot see the alternative as anything other than an attack on our liberty. Putting it very bluntly, one person's stumbling block is another person's justice issue. And we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves before we decide which side of any given argument we're going to come down on. And assuming we end up siding with the weak, we then need to decide what we're going to do about it. How courageous are we willing to be in the cause of lifting up the broken and the damaged? What price are we willing to pay in our efforts to welcome the stranger and love the unloved? This last week has been the week of prayer for Christian unity. And there have been many words preached and many prayers prayed for the unity of the body of Christ, both within and between denominations. And amen to all of that. I would love to be able to share bread and wine with my Roman Catholic friends. I would love to be united in ministry with my Anglican colleagues. 
I would love to live at peace with my Baptist family, both in this country and throughout the world. But sometimes I wonder if we prize unity over principle. Sometimes I fear we can turn a blind eye to the oppression in our midst in the interests of preserving the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. Sometimes I think we fail to realize that to discover true unity, we will have to unite around a cause rather than around avoiding an issue. I just don't think that sweeping issues under the carpet and hoping they'll go away is a viable strategy for Christian unity. The thing is, you see, you can stumble trying to avoid something every bit as much as you can tripping over it. The issue of women in ministry is not going to go away, however much some might wish it does. Neither is the issue of same-sex marriage and our broader response to the LGBTQ community the issue of asylum seekers is not going to go away. Neither is the issue of homelessness, nor our struggles with ethnic tensions. Clearing the streets of Windsor of those who normally sleep there may make for better wedding pictures when the time comes, but it will do nothing to solve the problem of vulnerable lives lived in hardship and danger. Sometimes the way to help the weaker to not stumble in their faith is to shine a light on the object that might be causing them to stumble, to highlight the issue at hand, to speak out about it. Trying to hide things in plain sight is a far more dangerous path, certainly for those who are weak and more likely to trip. So, perhaps we shouldn't worry too much that as a church we put a stumbling block in the path of Christian unity by allowing our voice to be heard loud and clear as we speak and act to include those whom others would still exclude. Perhaps we should instead focus on highlighting the issues so that the truly weak can learn to stand tall and feel welcome, while those who persist in tying themselves up in knots over it all can use our light to begin untangling themselves. After all, when Jesus met the man who heard voices, he didn't say that he should be locked away in some asylum, hidden from others because of his disruptive behavior. Rather, Jesus spoke to him and loved him and took decisive action to restore him to his rightful place in society. And new issues that challenge our worldview will continue to emerge. And so will people who make us feel uncomfortable because they aren't quite like us. Our definitions of normal will continually be rewritten if we allow them to be, because normal for me is not normative for all. And we will have to decide again and again what we're going to do with our power and our privilege and our freedom to act. Will we take decisions that include the excluded and restore the broken and empower the weak? Will we allow the Spirit of Christ to guide us into new places of being where we are no longer threatened by the loss of power because we have learned to give it willingly to those who have none? But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. One final song lyric to close. I went this week to see the Welsh singer Martin Joseph in concert. And his ability to take my soul and strip it bare 
and bring tears of sadness and anger and repentance to my eyes is as strong as it was when I first saw him perform 30 years ago. And he sung his song for the NHS, celebrating the vision of Nye Bevan who dreamed of a society where no one was left behind. And the song's chorus is a combination of quotes from Nye Bevan and Nelson Mandela. And on this note, I will close. The purpose of power is to give it away. This is my truth. Tell me yours. Freedom isn't freedom until poverty is gone. So nigh your dreams alive and strong. We're going to spend some time in prayer now. Um, these prayers have been inspired by the fact that today is Homelessness Sunday as well as the... Um, you can't hear me. Sorry. Move this bit closer. My voice is not the strongest this morning. You may be aware that clearly I have a stinking cold. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Fantastic. <coughs> Sorry. I promise not to cough into the mic. So we're going to pray this morning for Homelessness Sunday. I'm thinking about, in the context of Simon's sermon this morning, our power and the power in the world and those that make decisions. And this is a responsive prayer. So when I say, Lord, in your mercy, you respond with, hear our prayer. So it's nice and simple. So Lord, in our mercy, we pray for hope. We hope that those suffering from the effects of sleeping rough, of living in crowded, dangerous, and dirty conditions, of those parents, children, and old people living under daily stresses and deprivations caused by our housing crisis, can be offered release, found decent places to live, and be given security and safety that comes with a real home. Lord, in, our, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We hope that those involved in policies that perpetuate these problems, those who profit from the provision of shamefully poor and unsafe homes, and those who refuse to acknowledge that problems exist, will open their eyes and begin to change their ways for good. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the light of Christ. For Christ's light to shine at the hearts of all those who sell the idea of and have bought into the demonizing and dismissing of those of the poorest and most vulnerable members of our society. Let Christ's light open their eyes and give them new sight. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For Christ's light to shine in the hearts of everyone who spent last night sleeping on the street, those who stayed awake fearing that this would soon be their fate, and all those who slept in cold, damp rooms with no heating, those who lay afraid of their neighbours, and those who had done without a meal to feed and clothe their children. Give them strength and the knowledge that they can put their trust in God, and that their lives can change for the better. Lord, in your mercy... We pray for solidarity, for this community worshipping together today, that we may find the strength and will to stand alongside our neighbours in their need, listen to their stories, offer them dignity and love and journey with them towards hope and light we all need. Lord, in your mercy. For us all as children of God, to share that solidarity in our community so that we can help those 
close to the edge before they have lost all hope, before they have lost their home, before they become the new targets for the cynics and victims of the demoralizing process suffered by all who lose their homes. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And we pray for change. For change in how we treat those who are marginalized. Changed in how we plan and provide housing. Change in the quality and the cost of housing that all our society needs. And change in the vision and understanding of those involved in every aspect of the industry that builds, manages and sells housing in our land. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. <laughs>